Well, hello. It's time for another edition of Not Fake News, a podcast exposing and analyzing misinformation, disinformation, and no information reported or not reported in the news. And I'm your host, Mike T., your Ivy League conservative and former Democrat who has come to his senses, coming to you from the great flyover country, the great Midwest. February has come and gone, and so has Black History Month, but not without controversy. There is disagreement over how Black history should be taught in lower and higher education. Those on the left advocate for the teachings of the 1619 Project, which holds that America's true founding was in 1619 when slaves first came to America and Virginia. The so-called progressive educators believe that black history must include critical race theory, queer theory, and reparations for slavery. Those, these teachers say all children need to be taught all these things so that students can sort out the material and come to their own understanding of America's history. The problem with that approach is that its proponents seek to teach young minds that our country today is hopelessly and irredeemably flawed and that the sins of slavery are so persistent that black children, no matter how hard they try, can never, ever overcome the evils of, quote, systemic racism, end quote, which is baked into our history baked into our culture, and is present in our current society. Because of this, only a complete restructuring of society will cure the evils of systemic racism. What would this new society look like? Well, you guessed it, some form of enlightened socialism where government experts are in complete control to ensure outcomes are equitable and that all persons will be content with exchanging individual liberties for government security, government handouts, and where private ownership of anything is restricted or prohibited. The American dream? Forget about it. You will not be allowed to take risks because taking risks leads to anxiety. You will not be allowed to spend your time working harder than others. That would be, you guessed it, inequitable. It may lead to your success, but that would be at the expense of others. Now, before I get too far off subject, I'm already there. Let me say that in honor of Black History Month, I wanted to pay homage to a man I consider to be a great man and a contemporary leader a wonderful role model for young men and women of all races. His name is Clarence Thomas, and he is the most senior member of the United States Supreme Court. Now, you would think that Clarence Thomas is exactly the kind of black man that Black History Month would feature and promote. He came from abject poverty, endured real racism in the Deep South, in the 50s and 60s. 
and he overcame the many obstacles placed in his way by his dedication to hard work and education. He achieved the American dream through hard work and never, ever giving up. You would think that the story of Clarence Thomas would be front and center during Black History Month. You would think that there would be all kinds of children's books and graphic novels celebrating this American hero. Sadly, this is not the case. Let me explain. So I go to the nearest Barnes and Noble bookstore near my house, unfortunately, and sadly, that would be at least 15 miles away. I took the escalator up to the children's book section, hoping to find some easy-to-read books on contemporary black heroes like Clarence Thomas, who have made significant contributions to improving race relations in the United States. What did I find? Well, there's a big section of Penguin Workshop short story books in a series labeled Who HQ, targeting kids from birth to age 12. These books are priced reasonably from $4.99 to $7.99, and they're in the form of what is books and who was or who is books. For example, under the what is category, I found what is Congress and what is the Declaration of Independence. I also found what is climate change and what is Black Lives Matter. Under the who is or who was category, I found books on Jackie Robinson, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, and of course, Colin Kaepernick. I found books on Michelle Obama and Oprah Winfrey. I even found books about RBG, that would be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late Supreme Court Justice, and Ketanji Brown Jackson, the newest Supreme Court Justice. Guess which Supreme Court Justice was not featured? Clarence Thomas. Well, I had to make a stink out of this and promptly descended upon the help desk at Barnes & Noble I said, I asked, where is the Penguin Workshop book on Clarence Thomas? None was published by Penguin, and this is one of the largest publishers in the United States. The Barnes and Noble person did locate one children's book about Clarence Thomas. And guess what? It was published in 2021 by Post Hill Press and written by a man named L.D. Hicks a Christian author from Texas. Now, this book is well-written with great pictures, but it costs $15.30 a piece. So what? I ordered six of them. The reason for this is, you see, in my line of work as a court-appointed guardian ad litem for abused and neglected children, I make home visits, and I always bring books. Most of the children I see have big screen TVs in their bedroom, but they don't have bookshelves. Almost all of the children have no idea who is Clarence Thomas, so I try to educate them, one kid at a time. 
So during Black History Month, it seemed like a good idea to reread the 2007 memoir of Justice Thomas entitled My Grandfather's Son. When it was published 16 years ago, it was a number one bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. But today, no one talks about Clarence Thomas except to criticize him for being on the wrong side of the conservative majority in the United States Supreme Court. The book is not particularly long and it's very easy to read. By the way, someone did make a movie based upon the book, which closely follows the book, but I strongly recommend that each and every person pick up the book and read it if you want to be inspired. I was. So in an effort to provide a more complete black history of America and persuade you to read Clarence Thomas's memoir, allow me to provide you some of my thoughts on this remarkable man and his very candid book. Clarence Thomas grew up near Savannah, Georgia, in what I will describe as dirt poor. He had no father. He had no indoor toilet. He often went hungry, and in the wintertime, he was often very cold. He and his brother were raised by his grandparents at the request of his own mother, who simply could not afford to raise two sons without the help of their father, who abandoned them. Now, in his youth during the 60s, Clarence Thomas suffered the indignities of segregation. He had every reason to become an angry black man, and while in college, for a time, he did become an angry black man. But his grandparents taught him valuable life lessons, including the value of hard work, including working on a farm during the summer months, and they made sure he received a good education. He happened to go to Catholic schools, and for a while he thought about entering the priesthood. He even enrolled in the seminary where he learned Latin. He dropped out of the seminary. When he did that, his grandfather turned away from him, accusing him of breaking a promise. So Clarence Thomas eventually found himself attending Holy Cross College in Massachusetts. There he participated in anti-war, anti-racism rallies, and almost got kicked out of college. Well, that is where Clarence Thomas also came to his senses regarding racism in America during the turbulent 60s and what to do about it and how to overcome it. Let me read some excerpts from the book. Let's start with chapter three. And this is all about his time in 1968 at Holy Cross College. Quote, I now believe that the whole American culture was irretrievably tainted by racism and I showed my approval of the coming revolution. Racism had become the answer to all my questions, the trump card that won every argument. Clarence Thomas questioned what he considered to be blindness of the man who raised him, his grandfather, who he called Daddy. Quote, ever since I was a boy, I had looked up to Daddy as the patriarch of our family and the ultimate source of authority in my life. He knew how to build a house, deliver fuel oil, and put food on our table and clothes on our backs, but he never heard of Hegel, Kierkegaard, or Marx, so I wrote him off as an ignorant, illiterate, 
incapable of understanding or facing the facts about racism. How could a black man from the deep South who had survived the worst kind of bigotry possible refuse to admit that America was tainted and corrupt and had to be rebuilt from the ground up, end quote. At Holy Cross uh, College came Clarence Thomas's first brush with what he called racial heterodoxy. Recognizing that many talented black students were losing their way and dropping out, he wrote, quote, I couldn't see the point of putting them through an experience for which they were unprepared. Why, I asked, were these gifted young people being sacrificed on the altar of an abstract theory of social justice? And who profited from their failure? End quote. According to the book, Holy Cross College was not easy for Clarence Thomas, socially or academically. In the fall of 1969, when faced with a decision whether to live in a separate black uh, student living area in one of the dormitories, he asked, quote, did we really want to do ourselves what whites had been doing to us? End quote. He also wrote that he felt tension that arose from his unfamiliar unfamiliarity with white customs in a moment of what I would call remarkable discernment Clarence Thomas wrote quote sooner or later we would all have to learn how to live among whites end quote and the Holy Cross administration's apparent willingness to accommodate us now led black students to assume that they would always be able to get whatever they wanted End quote. Now, in 1969, as a student at Holy Cross, he rejected the social justice theory better known today as critical race theory. And I quote, he didn't call it that, but this is a quote from his book. Preferential policies intended to help blacks adjust to life after segregation were very much on my mind in those days. And now I began to think them through in a more systemic way. Talented blacks stuck on the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder clearly deserve such help, but the ones who most often took advantage of it were considerably higher up on the ladder. Most of the middle-class blacks with whom I discussed these policies argued that all blacks were equally disadvantaged by virtue of their race alone. I thought that was nonsense. Not only were some blacks economically more successful than others, but many light-skinned blacks believed themselves to be superior to their darker brethren, an attitude that struck me not as much different from white racism. Even now, blacks don't like to talk about the kind of prejudice, but it had been a very real part of my life in Savannah, which was, for all intents and purposes, segregated, not merely by race, but also by class and color. I thought that preferred policies should be reserved for the poor blacks whose plight was used to justify them, not the comfortable middle-class blacks who were better prepared to take advantage of them. And I also thought the same policies should be applied to similarly disadvantaged whites. End quote. He goes on to write, and I quote, on the other hand, I didn't think it was a good idea to make poor blacks or anyone else uh, 
more dependent on government. That would amount to a new kind of enslavement, one which ultimately relied on the generosity and the ever-changing self-interests of politicians and activists. It seemed that to me that the dependency it fostered might ultimately prove as diabolical as segregation, permanently condemning poor people to the lowest rungs of the socioeconomic ladder by cannibalizing the values without which they had no long-term hope of improving their lot. At the time, those ideas seemed to me to be a logical extension of my distrust for the man, though in fact they were rooted in the lessons daddy had taught me. I didn't yet know how heterodox the, that they were, much less than they were about to lead me away from the radical policies in which I thought I believed, end quote. He also writes, the beast of rage kept on gnawing at my soul, but the more I saw radicalism, the more I doubted that it had the answers to offer me, especially after a Black Panther from Boston came to Holy Cross to meet with a group of Black students. He treated us like children, telling us we were wasting our time at school and that the only thing that the man understood was a gun. As much as I hated the injustices perpetrated against blacks in America, I couldn't bring myself to hate my own country then or later, end quote. Can we say that about black and white students today? Unfortunately, I think not. Let me continue. Clarence Thomas wrote, quote, the more I read, the less inclined I was to conform to the cultural standards that blacks imposed upon themselves and on one another. The black people I knew came from different places and backgrounds, social, economic, even ethnic. Yet the color of our skin was somehow supposed to make us identical in spite of our differences. I didn't buy it. Of, of course, we all experience racism in one way or another. But did that mean we all had to think alike? End quote. Around this time, Clarence Thomas read Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, and The Fountainhead, two books preaching the philosophy of radical individualism. Of course, Marxism or socialism are incompatible with this idea of radical individualism. I'm going to quote him again. It went without saying that I was an individual. We are all individuals. The question was how much courage I could muster to express my individuality. What I wanted was for everyone, the government, the racists, the students, even daddy, to leave me alone so that I could finally start thinking for myself, end quote. As far as being an angry black man, Clarence Thomas wrote, quote, I had better things to do than be angry, end quote. Let me repeat that. As far as being an angry black man, Clarence Thomas wrote when he was 22 years old that he had better things to do. And one of the things he most wanted to do was become a lawyer. And so he applied to Harvard Law School and Yale Law School, 
and he decided to attend Yale. After he graduated from Yale Law School, Clarence Thomas had a difficult time finding a job. Can you imagine that? That and other events leading up to his nomination and selection to the United States Supreme Court, I'm going to leave for another podcast. Let me conclude by saying that the real tragedy is that during Black History Month, our schools do not teach children about this remarkable man, Clarence Thomas. So young children have no idea what he had to overcome to reach his American dream. Why not, you ask? The answer is disturbingly simple. Clarence Thomas is a conservative black man who does not adhere to the orthodoxy of the so-called Black Lives Matter movement or the theories of critical race and equity. Therefore, he is persona non grata. And so you will, find, you will not read anything favorable, favorable about him in the New York Times or the Washington Post or any other newspaper. There you will f- not find a positive article about Clarence Thomas during Black History Month or any other month. It's a shame, really. It's part and parcel of the fake news apparatus. Until next time, this is Mike T saying thanks for listening. And remember, never, never take for granted the blessings of liberty established for us and our children by our great Constitution. Read the Constitution. Learn it. Defend it against our enemies. Fake news is real. It's dangerous. It is everywhere. Stay informed. Be engaged. Our republic depends on you to keep it.